and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is a podcast where we dish on all things food with your favorite chefs, food influencers, and Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have a talented writer and educator on the podcast to talk about her collection of 5,000 cookbooks and her new show that explores the question, who gets to cook black food? She is a scholar, award-winning writer, restaurateur, cookbook author, and the host of the new Discovery Plus series, Hungry for Answers. It's Caroline Randall-Williams. Caroline, welcome to the podcast. Uh, First things first, is it true you have 5,000 cookbooks? Girl, it is true. It is very true, give or take, but I think (laughs) probably take. Like there's probably, it's 5,000 plus, I think. All right. Where where does this uh, cookbook uh, passion or obsession come from? Well, my grandmother, my dad's mother, Joan, uh, left me her cookbook collection Ah. uh, when she passed away. So I sort of, and she was a librarian and her father mm. was um, actually a Harlem Renaissance poet. So I'm a poet, I'm a cookbook author. Cook, so it's all like family practices, you know, but like. I love it. <laughs> but yeah, and then my godmother Mimi gave me her cookbook collection, which added another 3000 plus ish. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, it's, it's a, they're in two different rooms of my, of my, of the downstairs of my house. And they're like, it's a library of a house, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have like a catalog? Like, so you know where to find everything quickly? Um, or is it alphabetical? Or how, do, <laughs> how does this all organize? I have this like fantasy that like, I'm going to get some interns from like the library sciences graduate school somewhere here in Nashville to like, come and do it as like a research project, like organize my <laughs> books for me. But no, not yet. But like, I do want to catalog them. I need to. Right now, it's sort of just like a a madness, a methodical madness of like, I know where I put that the last time I used it kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, well, I love it. And I think it's a, a great introduction to who you are and your new Discovery Plus series, Hungry for Answers, where you travel the country uncovering the fascinating, essential, often untold black stories behind some of America's classic and emblematic food and spirits. You are uncovering the origin stories of these quintessential American offerings, as well as surfacing the truth when it comes to the equity or in most cases, the inequity regarding the recognition and reward and lack thereof for the true founding contributors throughout history. And I know you met the executive producer of this show, Viola Davis, on the set of The Help in 2010 and later pitched her the idea for this show. So how long has this show been on your heart and mind? In the abstract way, probably my whole life, because I grew up in the kitchens of you know black women who loved me and fed me and taught me stories through food, through life, in kitchens, around kitchens, all of that. And then, you know, in the immediate and more immediate present, like in my adult life, like I moved to Mississippi Delta. Uh, I met Viola because I was doing Teach for America and I lived in Greenwood, Mississippi, where they were filming The Help. And then the cookbook sort of began as just like a crisis of my life of, you know, straight out of college and living in a food desert, despite it being like this like agricultural you know, promised land, rural Mississippi, and having to cook for myself and be like, well, who am I drawing from? What are my memories? Like, how do I eat healthily, but also eat something that feels like it tastes good, has soul, like honors the ancestors, all that stuff. And then the cookbook was coming out. And I remembered 
meeting Viola and I reached out to her to ask her to blurb the book, which she did. And then when Juvie was starting up, they actually contacted me having remembered the cookbook and all of these things. So it's been this like, crazy legacy of just trying to do right by black bodies and black stories from every direction, sort of my whole life. But then the going to the Delta was to teach, right? And then the teaching led to cooking, led to writing about it. You know, it's super, it's been a really interesting journey. Yeah. I mean, cooking and food are so evidently, you know, woven into your identity. What are some of your first food memories? Oh my gosh. So my first sentence ever uh, I'm going to get teased for this, for saying this in the public. <laughs> but my first sentence I ever said was, Mommy, artichoke, please. And now, <laughs> Love so it. I, which I don't remember, but is in the baby book, like mm -hmm. in real time. So we know that that's true. Um, but I think like, first food memories, you know, just helping being put to work at Thanksgiving, like whether it be like peeling things or pulling bread apart to make uh, breadcrumbs for, you know, the creamed onions or whatever else, or pulling the strings off of corn or snapping the ends off of green beans, just like trying to be helpful in the mm -hmm. kitchen growing up. Th those are my, those are like my first like salient memories. I'm trying to think of like my first, I cooked this myself, like triumph. It's a, a lot of like really frightening experiments or what come to mind when I think about that, like, like the time like I what? put orange, dipped oranges in my cup of milk or things like that when I was little. But, um, but yeah, I'm trying to think. And I had an easy bake oven. I remember that too. Because mm. cooking is alchemy, right? Like when you're a kid and you like put these three things together and then all of a sudden they're this whole other thing. It's sort of this deep magic to it that I still am obsessed with. Your mother and grandmother are also part of the show and, you know, an important part of the conversations that you start to have on the show. How did their relationship and approach to food, nourishment, mealtime shape your own perspective? So in the show, you have my mom and then you have my uh, my stepdad's mom, uh, Fluffalo, who is uh, who's been in my life for basically as long as I can remember. You know, it's interesting. Mom and Flo are both really celebration cooks. And that's something mm. that's always been uh that's like sort of central to some of the things that I think about, like in my cookbook, but then also in just like my sense of what like black food is in America today relative to what it's been. And when I say celebration cooks, I mean, like they'll like really do it out for the holidays and like, you know, mm -hmm. Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, like New Year's, like all the big ones in our family, in our community, but like not in the day to they're they're not actually like day to day home cooks. Mm -hmm. And so I really what's interesting is like I came into like home cooking in the day to day on my own. Um, okay. And part of that is to do with the shared history of like there is like trauma for black women in the kitchen. You know, like there's you know, there's like a whole there's generations and like whole pockets of the black women, female community who are like, I don't want to go in the kitchen because that's like the only job we were allowed to have. Mm. It was the only way we could feed our families. It's a it's a place of like oppression, a reminder of gross, broader inequities. You know, like in my own family, like my great grandmother was conceived in a rape in a kitchen when her mother was working in that kitchen of a white wow. family. Right. And things like that. So and that's and she's not the only member of my family for whom we know that story to be true. So kitchens can be these really complicated places. And like so my mom and my and, and my grandma Flo Flo, like they're very much like, well, we're going to do this like big festive thing occasionally. And we're really going to do it all out. We're going to invite the whole family over, like everyone to the cookout, like do the thing, set the table, make it this big celebration. But their approach informed my approach. But then I think like 
some of the absence of the cooking and the day to day sort of sent me down the rabbit hole of like, mm-hmm. but what were we doing? Like, how do we feed ourselves? What's nourishing in the day to day? Like, what do black people like? What are we supposed to be putting in our bodies? Like, what what are the day to day kitchen stories that we need to be telling? Like, I got there in this sort of roundabout way from not having been raised there. I mean, what do you think it means to be a custodian and a steward of black food and culture? The first thing to say is I can't speak for us all. I can only speak for myself by the same token. Like we know what we mean when we say the culture or we know when I think about like community solidarity, when I think about linking arms to combat like shared noted injustices, I think about to that end, I can say like being a custodian of black food and culture means being someone who's like pointing out that our stories need to get told and leaving room for them. Right. Like, I don't know that I have. Like I said, I'm hungry for answers, but what I have is lots of questions, right? Like all all I have is I want to, I want to ask as many people what their story is and like be somebody who can be a platform for as many stories as possible to come into the space, I guess. And that's like, and that's precious work. And I feel very lucky. I mean, and I obviously do have the lens of my own experience and I'm very grateful to get to honor like my family and my, you know, and like my ancestors and like my heroes uh, as I wade into the conversation for sure. But I think it's really for me, the being a custodian, it's like being a good librarian. You just got to take care of all of the stories in in the library, right? Like you just have to make sure that they're all getting told, curated, looked after, taken out and perused, you know? I mean, and there are so many stories um, and still so many that have yet to be uncovered. But, you know, I think the show really does a good job of, you know, kind of honing in on some of these, um, you know, really important topics. It's beautifully shot, beautifully edited. I think the storytelling is wonderful. So you you definitely did a good job of, you know, diving into these people's stories that we see in the show. And one of the episodes is actually set in your hometown in Nashville, also known as the birthplace of hot chicken. And you kind of set out to dive into the origins of this food, as well as have some, you know, complex, some, some difficult discussions about who should be allowed to benefit from it. Can you share a little bit about what you discovered in that episode? I tried to say it in the in the episode, which I'm so excited. I hope your listeners will be able to check out. The question about hot chicken is really a question about, as with so many things in like American culture that came from black culture, about the question of appropriation versus appreciation. If you think about blues music, you think like Mick Jagger learned how to do what he did for like Muddy Waters and like Howlin' Wolf. And he amplified and elevated at every turn when he was able, you know, at the start of their careers the Rolling Stones career. And I feel like that's like an appreciator vibe, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas you can kind of insert artist who is an appropriator. Elvis is the most iconic one, right? Like, I'm just going to like take this sound, take these moves, take this look. And me and my white body and voice are going to be able to cross in the mainstream and make money that a black person doing exactly the same thing could never dream of, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think with Hot Chicken, it's that same story, right? Like Nashville has these like massive white male owned hot chicken like empires that are brewing here um, and they're everywhere. And hot chicken was started, uh, you know, by Thornton Prince, the 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 bar- uh, Prince's barbecue shack that became Prince's hot chicken. Andre Prince Jeffries coined that name. 
um, and figuring out, you know, in the history of the tradition of revenge chicken in like the black community, it was like way predates even Nashville hot chicken. And you're thinking about like, how did this very like sort of iconic niche, black, delicious delicacy then in the hands of these white men, like boom into this other thing? The answer can't be nobody's allowed to touch anything that didn't come from their culture. Right. Right. And right. I think that the answer has to be, what does it look like to honor like the origins of a thing that you are now co- like now contributing to the legacy of? Right. And I learned that the conversations are as hard as they look. I learned that people need a chance to be asked to come to the table in both directions. You know, like I was surprised and I asked both of the guys that own the two different uh, the two different uh, restaurants that I interviewed um uh, Hattie B's and Party Fell. Neither of them had ever sat down really with Miss Andre, and but there's there'd never been really an opportunity created for them to do that. I'm hoping like season two, <laughs> we, we need a yes. we need a season two. Follow we need up. to do that because I think um, there was an openness to it, and you realize like if somebody doesn't like if I'm not asking, nobody's asking. Like we have to ask these questions because we have to facilitate bridges to each other, and I think that there's. Um, and it seems like it would be obvious that there'd be a bridge, but it turns out that what's obvious is that bridges are really hard to build. And mm-hmm. you have to like, if you see where a bridge needs to be, you just need to ask about who's building it and then like take the job on yourself, maybe. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting because actually the last time I was in Nashville, I want I was like, I'm going to Prince's. I want to go to the like original, the birthplace of hot chicken. I made, you know, just like a little video about it that I posted on social and one somebody commented and they're like, oh, I thought Hattie B's was the original hot chicken. And I, you know, I politely corrected them and, and pointed out the years <laughs> in which each establishment started. Um, but why do you think that that has become the narrative? So, I mean, I think that the, the, the glib answer is because that's how it always works. You know, like Miss mm-hmm. Andre said, like, that's how America's always been, like Christopher Columbus saying that he discovered you know, America and, you know, the there were like whole indigenous populations already being like, yo, you know, been here. <laughs> There's the like sort of superficial answer of like startup funding, marketing and <laughs> marketing and but then also the capacity to open in places that are more common thoroughfares for the kind of people that have the disposable income and the buy-in to that kind of niche food item, right? Like Hattie B's is like right in the middle of like Midtown Nashville, you know, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, Prince's is, Prince's was in the hood, right? <laughs> like it's, it was it's not, like, I mean, I didn't have a car. I yeah, took an Uber. And like it people, wasn't close. Like yeah. people, or the original Prince's was, and, and, and the current Prince's is not in an easy to get to location necessarily, um, the, the, the main store. And I think, and part of that is like, generational you know there's like generational poverty there's generational wealth it's like figuring out how to enter the like nashville is a wildly segregated city for first of all you know like they built the highway through nashville in like the late 60s early 70s and it like cut off an artery to like commerce in nashville like restaurants closed down businesses closed down the city's never recovered you know, like, how do you get a loan as a black business owner? How do you know where to set up shop? Are you going to be welcome if you set up your restaurant in the middle of town in a place where people are likely to frequent it and encounter your food made by you? Like, pro- like all of these sort of ec- other systemic, like political things, historical, social inequities, like that 
make it hard to start any kind of business as a person of color, especially in the South, especially in a city as segregated as Nashville. Like, I think that that's got a lot to do with it. And I think you're right. The marketing machine has a lot to do with it. Where are the PR people like knocking down Prince's door? I'm hungry for those answers. And maybe it's too easy to say that that's just it feels it's almost tiresome to try and answer that question because it feels like it's the way it works everywhere. Yeah, it's frustrating. I mean, you mentioned Miss Jeffries and and you had a chance to sit down with her Mm -hmm. for this episode and, you know, get her perspective on this matter of ownership and other establishments being credited with the work, the labor, the history of her family. You were brought to tears during Mm -hmm. that moment. What what were you feeling in those moments? Well, she is such a gracious and graceful woman. Mm. And I think her like circumspection and like her ability to be like, well, we're all breathing the same air. And I'm just glad that this food that I've created is reaching so many people and moves them. It makes you want to cry because I feel a certain resignation about the likelihood of her getting her flowers in real time at the scale Mm. that she deserves. And I feel honored to be able to offer her in like a private individual moment the respect that she deserves. That's a humbling thing for me to get to do, which is moving. But it's also there's also something like really poignant and heartbreaking about her sense of peace with the inevitability of her establishment in her lifetime, not having the same scale of success that these other places have had. No, I agree. I mean, I I got teared up as well um, watching that moment. And I think it's just, you know, one of the many moments, uh, you know, that shows like why this particular program is important. When we come back, more from Caroline on her new Discovery Plus show, Hungry for Answers. Another episode you are still in your home state, but you're going to the origins of whiskey and specifically the story of Jack Daniel and the black man who taught him how to distill whiskey. And his name was Nearest Green. What central question was raised during your time learning about this story? Well, I think that for me, the <laughs> the central question that I um, and I have a little moment with the uh, with Mr. Nelson Eddy, who is the the chief historian for Jack Daniel's. The first part of I think it might be a dual central question. So it might be a pair of or a pair of central questions. But one was, are we really using this word mentor? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because I think, like you know, they talk about near a screen. And they say he was Jack Daniels's mentor and that he was uh, he mentored him and taught him. You sort of Jack learned at nearest's knee how to make whiskey. Um, And I think that it puts this very like benign polish on what is like a much harder, uglier truth, which is that like Nearest was forced to teach this young white man how to make whiskey by his owner, by the man who presumed to own him. And I'm sure that was not like a voluntary exercise. Right. And Mm -hmm. then regardless of what their relationship. Yeah, exactly. Regardless of what their relationship became. The, the teaching was not voluntary. I'm a mentor to a lot of people. It's always <laughs> a voluntary choice, right? That's like, that's a gift that you give to a student that you like want to learn things. So I think like, I mean, and I mean, and this is the, like, there cannot be consent and a power imbalance, right? Like that's just, that's just it. 
And now Nearest did go on to continue working at the distillery and then his, you know, his sons, his family. So there was a, so there was a, a long time consensual relationship between the, mm-hmm. the Green family and Jack Daniels. But I think that the origin, the origin still needs to be dignified with like all the truth of it. I think I, I just think anything that uh, that sort of sweeps the heinousness of slavery under the rug needs to be like re-examined. <laughs> Do you know what I <laughs> yeah. mean? Yeah. And then and I think that that my other central question about when I was at the Jack Daniels distillery is what is owed in the present? Because I think that there's, I mean, America is dealing with this in every direction, but like, how do you repair? What does a reparation look like? Right. And it's like, it's the scale is so staggering that it's almost difficult to even contemplate. It's like, it's so it's, it's unspeakable. It's monetary. It's, 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 it's written in my, in the bones and trauma. It's like, it's all of these things. And it's like, do we even start? Like, do we even say that we ought to do it when we have no idea where it begins or ends? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, when when someone is, you know, made aware or held ac- accountable from any of this, profiting from the the labor, the foods, the recipes, I mean, what does the appropriate course of action look like? I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, you might not know either. I mean, it's just it's it's a question that we need to continue to look into it. Yeah, I'm hungry for answers. I'm hungry. <laughs> I am hungry. I'm ravenous for that answer. I thought it was interesting, though, when you did, you know, going back to the the mentorship and this kind of like romanticizing of that relationship or how it began. And when you brought it up, the historian, I don't think it had ever, you know, been brought up to him before. He was like, you're right. You know, like that, that's a great point. I mean, how, how can we continue to look at these stories with this critical eye so we can continue this evolution? It's interesting to me. So the other, that reminds me of another question that I had, like throughout the tour, they're all like, you know, we never, we found, there's this moment where he's pointing to the the picture of near of nearest's uh, descendant and next to Jack Daniels, like on the steps and, um, you know, in pride of place right next to him. And he's like, we had this picture in the archives and we never knew who that guy was. And I was like, y'all have a whole historian in house <laughs> and you have <laughs> allegedly never not had a green family member working for the company and somehow mysteriously, like y'all don't know who this person, this picture is like this picture's not that old. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of a, a roundabout way of saying that how we do better is by assuming that there's more to know every time. Mm-hmm. Like if there are no if like especially if you're in an American industrial or like an, an American place of industry or agriculture, especially in the south. If you haven't heard a story about black people, somebody is lying or covering something. (laughs) And if by some miracle that is not the truth, like, then go find that out. Do you know what I mean? But like, don't don't assume assume that something is being overlooked, untold, made less of Mm -hmm. and, and start from there. Yeah, because it's like we are, you know, like innocent till proven guilty. But like America's guilty, like we're guilty, you know, So it's like now we just need to continue to find evidence, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, I don't want to give too much away because I mean, I think it is really important for everybody to watch the show. But in in other episodes, you also explore the history of sugarcane, its past and present relationship with the black community, as well as, you know, the challenges, the systemic inequities that black farmers face. What were you most surprised to learn during your time filming those episodes? The term convict leasing 
I was I was sort of distantly familiar with the concept, but not the scope and scale, you know, mm-hmm. convict leasing being, you know, the 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 leasing of prisoners on, you know, the prisoners in uh, state federal prisons to work private <laughs> land for profit. <laughs> I mean, it's just <laughs> it's just I mean. And, it, and I think it's, you know, it's the it's the 13th Amendment loophole that says slavery is illegal except as a punishment for a crime. Right. And then what do we do in this country? We just like criminalize everything that black people ever do. Mm-hmm. And we have since emancipation, the wildness of how directly the prison system is tied to slavery the, and the underscoring of that and the like. I remember like realizing, I think, on camera in real time, like the staggering truth of the fact that like. It was actually better than slavery for the for the people that were enjoying the profit, because like a slave was an expensive investment that like, you know, if you treated your slave badly and they got sick and like couldn't yield as much crop, you know, or whatever, couldn't work as hard for you. That was money down your drain. Whereas Mm -hmm. like if a prisoner dies on the job, you just get another one, you know, and so it's just like I mean, it was it's unreal. What do you think about also, you know, the prisons are paying to to house them, to to feed them and and they're just getting the work out of it. I mm-hmm. mean that. Yeah. I mean, and, and as you're standing there, I mean, I, I know you you had said to, you know, one of the people that you interviewed that it was an honor to be there with him. And he was like, this is not an honor, you yeah. know, but I know what you meant. But like, it, I'm sure that that, you know, was a, a difficult thing for him to to go back to the site of of that trauma. I mean, what does it mean to you that that, you know, these people are are trusting you with their stories? I mean, I think that sort of goes back to your question of the like the sort of custodial obligations of this job. Mm -hmm. Like it's as precious as if I worked in a museum with like some thousand year old irreplaceable artifact. Right. Like you're like, this is a just a gift. Like, please, please, like, just let me ask you of the right questions so that your like extraordinary truth can come out. What's kind of cool, it's like by the end of this, like the series, I've talked to so many people. It's like such an extraordinary kaleidoscope of people who are in this shared space of like black food in America. Right. Mm -hmm. But the stories are so ranging and and the scope of like what other societal concerns they touch is so deep. Right. And are so deep and so broad. And yeah, I don't know. I think like talking to Danny when I wrote my little soul food cookbook in 2012 or I started working on it in 2012, but like when it came out in 2015, I never thought this is going to take me to jail, but food touches everything and trying to tell black stories inevitably will involve food. I mean, it's like, it's all just circular. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I want to point out too, I mean, I think obviously, you know, the, the point of the series is to dive deeper into these, these questions that, that we need answers to that need to be, you know, talked about, but you also, I mean, you get to enjoy some, some good food and drinking. So I, I want to put that out there that, you know, you get a little <laughs> bit of both in this series yeah, and girl. your stomach. I mean, my stomach was growling when you guys were eating those pulled pork, you know, grilled cheese sandwich. I don't even oh know what they God. were, but I wanted them. Um, I mean, do you have a favorite bite or or sip from, from filming the series? Oh, I mean, drinking Uncle Nearest with Fawn, <laughs> like in the house, you know, that was where Nearest lived mm-hmm. and worked. That was pretty extraordinary. And then I will also say like the honey. I got to like, I, I got to like 
scrape honey off of the like the comb, the sheet, and then like had to hold the giant, I don't know, was it a centrifuge? Like whatever you spin the honey in. <laughs> that was the raw honey tasting. That was like ridiculously fun as well. <laughs> like that was that was like fun and hilarious. Like a slight moment of shame for me that like I saw the footage, I was like, I really did just hold that thing. Like it was like a <laughs> like a bucking bronco. Like I don't even <laughs> But yeah, those were those were two of my I think those are my two favorite I mean and oh, obviously the princes, like eating princes I with Miss yeah. Andre. Like what are you gonna what am I talking about? Like princes with Miss Andre also also the best. That's amazing. I mean how how hot did you end up going? Oh, I like I will I will take a bite of medium. But when I say like, like mild is like, cause you can get no seasoning, which still is like, they still put a lot of salt and pepper. Like it's still got a lot going on in there. Right. Mm -hmm. But like mild is hot. Okay. Like it's cause it's all hot chicken. So it's like, you're starting at hot. So (laughs) I'm good. (laughs) I'm good with the mild. Like I'm like trying to like live the rest of my day. Like not like unsettle myself. Like, like you eat hot. The hot, you're down for the count for a minute, like, or I am anyway. Like, I can't, I can't mess around with that. I think I I did medium and I thought to myself, I could probably do the hot, but I was happy with the medium. Like, I I was like, all right, like, I can still taste everything Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and enjoy it, I Mm -hmm. think is is the key because it is really delicious chicken, you know? Yeah, it's it's perfectly fried. Everything's everything's exactly right. Yeah, that's Yeah, so you want to be able to taste all of it. I mean, for someone who has a similar passion as you, you know, this, this burn to to share these important stories like you do and hungry for answers. What is your advice to them? Trust your obsessions, ask lots of questions, be brave Mm -hmm. (laughs) and not just trust yourself, but like enjoy your own instincts. Um, Because I think that like so often in like earlier parts of my career, I'd be like, does anyone want to hear about this? Like, am I being so weird? Am I allowed to be the one to talk about this? Like, but then, you know, you meet these. And for me, I've just been very lucky that I've had, you know, allies and witnesses, people like Viola, like people like my team at B17, like my, you know, my production, like people at the Food Network who are like, wow, this girl's asking really weird questions, but we're really excited about it. And these actually, and they're questions that like actually a lot of people want to know the answers to. So mm-hmm. I think that like my idiosyncrasies and obsessions and like my need to be a poet and also yell about politics and also do this home cooking and also just be like a black girl from the South and like hold (laughs) all of those things together. Sometimes it felt at moments like we need to pick one of these agendas. And then the show is just like, you know, proof positive that if you like hold on to all of the stuff that you're obsessed with, that you know yourself to be like, it can like align and then become its own thing, you know? And so I think like that, that's my advice. Stick to your, Enjoy your instincts, be brave, ask lots of questions. Yeah, I mean, and, and you see that you see that come to life in this show. So I hope everyone, you know, takes uh, takes the opportunity to to watch it on Discovery Plus. Um, this has been so insightful and wonderful chatting with you. We are going to wrap things up with some rapid fire questions. And awesome. then we have one final question that we ask everybody on the show. So, all right. A cookbook you wish everyone had. Soul Food Love. It's my cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. You got you to gotta pu- publicize yourself, right? Favorite cocktail? Martini. Favorite Black-owned Nashville food establishments? Prince's Hot Chicken. Uh, Slim and Husky's. It's Pete's Place. Okay. Bolton's. And the Cupcake Collection. Okay. Black woman-owned like cupcakes. Love that. Your top three pantry staples? Olive oil, sweet potatoes, onions. 
Okay. Song you cannot stop listening to. I'm just going to say my favorite song of all time. Come on, Eileen. Perfect. By Dexy's Midnight Runners. <laughs> all right. So in the first episode, you mentioned the happy dance that you do when you have, you know, an amazing bite of food. So what's the last thing you ate that made you do a happy dance? I actually just had princes. I had my students over. <laughs> I had my students over for the end of semester last week and I had princes and I was dancing real happy. Amazing. And I also roasted some potatoes on Sunday night that I did a happy dance over in my own kitchen. So. All right. I love it. Travel or vacation destination that you'd like to go next? I'm going to Sweden at the end Ooh. of the month and we're also to Belgium. So I'm really excited about those. I've never been to either of those places. So I think those are my travel destinations that I want to go to because I'm going. All right. Well, I, we will look forward to seeing the, the the recaps and the photos. All right. So the last question, and this is what we ask everybody on Food Network Obsessed to, to finish out the interview. Uh, this is not rapid fire, so you can take as long as you want uh, on this question. And that is what would be on the menu for your perfect food day? So breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert. There are no rules. So you can travel, time travel. Anyone can cook it for you. You can spend you know absurd amounts of money if you want. Um, Calories don't count, obviously. So yeah, whatever, whatever is like your ideal, you know, meals for those, those meals, let us know. I love an adventure. So like, mm -hmm. I think that there's a world where like, there's some wild card that I don't even know how to describe, you know. Um, <laughs> but I think of my just like my heart's home foods, mm -hmm. like, I love poached eggs on buttery toast for breakfast. Yes. Like, it's just <laughs> my whole favorite thing, period. I... I'm not a huge lunch eater, but okay. I am a, I think like favorite lunch. I really love like a good, like a well-composed sandwich of any kind. Like, okay. But like, but I like, it's just, it's like a weird joy of mine, but I love, <laughs> I just, I love a thoughtfully composed sandwich. Okay? okay. And then for dinner, I'm like, do I say lamb bolognese? Cause like, that's like one of my biggest Ooh. joys of life. Or do I say... Like, I love a steak. Yeah. <laughs> you, like, you know what? I you really, have like, I really <laughs> love a good, like, uh, I like a ribeye. What do I want for dinner? But I'm also like, but don't I just want Indian food? And I'm also <laughs> like, but, and I want pho for lunch, actually. I want chicken okay. pho for lunch. All right. I don't know. Done. I'm a weird, she's a weird girl. No, She's a no. weird girl. I like, no. and tomorrow the answers would all be completely different. So I have no, and I like, I also love sashimi. Like, I love okay. Like Japanese food. I don't know. I, girl, I want to say one last thing, too. Yes. I tried please. a round of Food Network. This was not my first invitation to the dance with them. We we had an adventure earlier that didn't work out. And then when they reached out to me the second time, they said they were like, hey, do you want to try another show? And I said, only if I can cuss and wear black. <laughs> that was my those were my two stipulations for taking a second bite at the Food Network at the Apple with the wonderful Food Network and they said yes to me so anybody who has made it this far into our conversation please know that if you tune in to Hungry for Answers it's, what, it's the show where the Food Network said yes to the girl who said, I'm only doing this show if I can cuss and wear black. So, <laughs> I mean, I love that. And if that's not, you know, an invitation to, to, to come check it out, I don't know what it is. Again, congratulations. Such a, a wonderful show. And yes, you're wearing black and there is a little bit of cussing, but not too much. And drinking and eating and just and good drink, life. All the yeah, things. All the fun all things. things. It's the party. You're, you're invited to the cookout. 
Yeah, you're invited to the cookout and you're going to you're going to learn some things along the way as mm-hmm. well. <laughs> so thank you again for taking the time and joining us and telling us your story. Oh, thank you so much for having me. All four episodes of Hungry for Answers will be available to stream on Discovery Plus beginning Wednesday, June 8th. Thanks so much for listening and make sure you follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review. We love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday. 